pretty amazing story from 2018, the First Baptist Church, Wakefield, Massachusetts, 150-year-old church, totally engulfed in flames, destroyed by fire. Everything but one thing in the church was destroyed by fire. You can see pictures of the aftermath. Here's the one thing that was not destroyed by the fire. It's a painting, not even touched by the flames, a painting here, Jesus with his hands outstretched, welcoming sinners to come home. Pretty amazing. And we're going to see that that's the promise at all times, you know, for you and for me, that he is there, open arms, waiting for us to simply come home. Joseph Campbell, famous philosopher and writer, said, People say we are all seeking the meaning of life. I don't think that's what we're after. I think what we are seeking is an experience of being alive. I think that's true, and especially today, in this time where, where there's uncertainty and the pandemic and the economic upheaval. You know, people want to know what it's like to have passion and to fully live. And we're going to see today there's two paths available. There is that path of truly being alive, entering into this life in Christ. And there's the path of entering into life wrapped around self and sin. And we'll see what that looks like, too, with some contemporary as well as some historical examples of both. We've been looking at Psalm 91, which talks about uh, the protection and presence of God. Let's look at the next verse here, verse 7, which says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. You know, this picture here, it, it should bring to mind what you read in Exodus when Moses and the Pharaoh are having this discussion, and there's these plagues in Egypt, but those plagues don't touch the children of Israel. The psalmist here says the same thing. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, and here's the key, but it will not come near to you. We live in a time where Psalm 91 needs to be something we apprehend by faith in our heart and confession in our mouth. It's a level of protection that God promises like none other. We do know things happen to believers' lives, and we'll see what Jesus had to say about that. But the broader picture is, is there's a difference to be in Christ and watching the chaos in the world and recognizing the promise it will not come near you in the same way. Exodus chapter 8, when Moses talks to Pharaoh, he says, the Lord speaks, I will set you apart in the land of Goshen. That land of Goshen in, in Egypt, when all the plagues were hitting, you know, they had the locust, the darkness, the plague on the livestock. That happened in Egypt. Goshen, in the middle of Egypt, where the children of Israel were, it was like paradise. These plagues did not touch there. And Exodus 8 goes on and says, I will make a difference between my people and and your people, your people are Egypt, who the Pharaoh was ahead of, which represents the world. I'll set you apart in the land of Goshen. Goshen, that place of protection. Yes, there's things in the world. doesn't impact our lives as believers the same way as it does for those who don't know Christ. As Joseph Prince says, as God's beloved child, you are in the world, but not of the world. And as the children of Israel were kept safe and protected in Goshen, so the Lord will keep you safe in the secret place of the Most High. Psalm 91, the picture here, it calls us to say, let me live with a different standard. Without the fears, without the upsets, without the upheaval that everybody else is talking about and facing, rather saying, I stand in Christ his arms are outstretched to welcome us into that life that he offers. And a thousand may fall at your side, but it won't come near you in the same way because you're set apart in the land of Goshen. And he makes a difference, a distinction between his people and the world. 
And the offer to the world is to become part of his people. But for those that choose sin and self, there's a difference between that life and the consequences therein and the providence and protection for believers. Let me give you a couple examples, radical ones here. Going back to World War I, there's a man named Leonard Knight. And what he did is he carried a New Testament and the book of Psalms also in his pocket. And one day, he was only 17 years old. He shot by a German soldier, but he placed that Bible in his breast pocket. And the bullet struck and got lodged in that Bible. And here's a picture of that. And you can see, and he obviously, you know, people said it's a, it's a miracle. The Bible stopped that bullet. Here's another example from World War I. Harry Taylor, this is his son Roy in the picture here. But, you know, Harry Taylor, he carried a, a New Testament and the book of prayer in his pocket. And he was a cyclist carrier, and he'd ride this bike delivering packages from location to location. And one day, he's on his bike, and a sniper shoots him. He's hit with a bullet. So powerful was the impact, it knocks him off his bike. Here again is the picture. The bullet hit the prayer book in the Bible, and Harry Taylor was unharmed. And he lived to tell that story over and over. And here's his son holding up the, the, the prayer book and the Bible, sharing years later what his dad talked about, you know, the hand of God intervening to protect Harry Taylor's life. Now, those are radical examples, and, you know, we are facing different things in our life. It doesn't have to be a, a bullet from a sniper. It could be the arrows of the enemies trying to discourage us or tempt us. Maybe it's a toxic relationship that you need protection from, or maybe it's just fear in this time where so much is being generated. So consider something Sharon Bray writes about eagles and crows. She writes, the only bird that dares to peck at an eagle is the crow. He will sit on the back and bite the eagle's neck. The eagle, though, does not respond. It does not fight the crow. It will not waste its energy on a crow. It simply opens its wings and begins to rise higher in the heavens the higher the flight, the harder it is for the crow to breathe, and then the crow falls due to lack of oxygen. Stop wasting your time with crows. Just take them to your heights, and they will fade away. Again, a different standard for life that says, I embrace that promise that a thousand may fall at your side, but it will not come near you. Now, we recognize that things happen to believers' lives, but what did Jesus say about that? John 16, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he continues and says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a promise of protection again at a level that not many know because it's offered for those in Christ. And if you're in him, when the devil brings discouragement, claim and speak out loud and pray things like Psalm 91. The promise here of Jesus in John 16 is say, you know what? Jesus has overcome the world and through him, I've overcome the world as well. You know, Tim Keller wrote about the true and better Christ, and he says, you know, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for condemnation but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and now uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death passes over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread.
is the true and better everything. And so in that, then we hold on to Psalm 91 and say, listen, there is chaos and upset and uncertainty and there's a fallen world and sin, but believers have a hand of protection about them in Christ that they need to claim and speak and show other people in the world that they can know that same promise. Jesus there with open arms to welcome each of us in to simply receive the gospel promise that our sins will be washed away. Consider something here from Guidepost. They did a study on the top dads who are the favorite dads in television history. And we're going to talk about one who has a special testimony. At number five, though, top TV dads, Michael Kyle from My Wife and Kids. Number four, Howard Cunningham from Happy Days. Number three, Charles Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie. Number two, Tim Taylor from Home Improvement. Most popular TV dad of all time, John Walton from The Waltons. But let's talk about number three, Charles Ingalls, of course, played by Michael Landon. You know, Michael Landon, he had a tough childhood. His mother was mentally ill. She tried to take her life several times. She would even do that in front of him. He lost his father. He was only 22 at the time. But growing up, you know, he had that long hair that you see him throughout his time on TV. And, you know, he'd be picked on by other students. One thing he could do, though, was throw the javelin. Got a scholarship to college, and he was on the track team throwing the javelin making all these records, and he had this long hair, so he's very noticeable. Other teammates got jealous, and one day they attacked him, held him down, and roughed him up. They shaved his head, and, and they also, you know, when they roughed him up, they damaged his shoulder, and it wouldn't recover, so he couldn't throw the javelin. Now his career's over because of these bullies. He leaves school, and, and as anybody would be, he's upset and, and just searching. He eventually tries out for an acting role, and then his career takes off. But people that knew Michael Landon said the person you saw on TV, that's who he was in life. That's why people loved him. He was authentic. That's who he really was, that kind, gentle person. And he shared, though, why that was. Here's the words of Michael Landon. What happened is his daughter, her name is Cheryl, a reckless driver, 80 miles an hour, slammed into her car, and she almost is at the brink of death in a coma. Here's what Michael Landon wrote. The most important promise I ever made was a promise to God. I made it while holding the hand of my daughter, Cheryl, who was lying near death in a hospital near Tucson. Her body was shattered. She was in deep coma and the doctors gave her no chance at all. I wouldn't, I couldn't give up. So I stayed with her in intensive care, day after day, holding her hand, telling her I loved her. We all loved her. The nurses said it's useless that she couldn't hear me, but I didn't listen. And when Cheryl finally woke up, she told me things I'd said to her, and I spoke to God. I promised God if he'd let her live, I would do something useful with my life, something to make the world a better place because I'd been there. Cheryl lived, and I've tried to keep that promise ever since. And what he said next, you know, some people have it on, on cards or posters for good reason. He wrote this, somebody should tell us right at the start of our lives, we are dying. Then we might live life to the limit every minute of every day. Do it, I say, whatever you want to do, do it now. You see, that's a different life, life of faith that claims and knows the promise. Look, 10,000 may fall at your right hand. It will not come near you in the same way because he that is in you is greater than he that's in the world. 
Jesus has overcome the world, and so in him we have overcome the world. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, writes about Psalm 91. It shall be near as to be at thy side, yet not nigh enough to touch thee. Like a fire it shall burn around, yet shall not the smell of it pass upon thee. In a measure, this is true spiritually as well as of physical evil. The Lord still puts a difference between Israel and Egypt in the day of plague. Sennacherib's army is blasted, but Jerusalem is in health. Look next at Psalm 91 verse 8, which says, You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. You'll observe with your eyes. Why? Because in Christ, our condemnation was taken in him. Our sins have been washed away. That's an offer for the world as well. But for those that reject that, we're told believers can look and see the consequence, the punishment upon sin for those who reject Christ. It's just like Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. That's true in a positive and negative sense. If you and I sow holiness, we reap the blessing of God. If we sow sin and selfishness, we reap the consequence of that. Let me show you something here from Proverbs 14, 9, and then we're going to see an example of what happens. You know, when people choose to, to not repent versus if they do repent. Psalms 14, 9, I'll read a couple translations. The King James says, fools mock at sin, the righteous though there is favor. New Living Translation, fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. New American Standard, fools mock sin, but among the upright there's goodwill. And lastly, the century version, fools do not care if they are wrong, but God is pleased when people do right. Sounds like the world, because that is the world. People that mock at sin. There's an example of that from a few years back, a very public one. You know, David Letterman, the talk show host, he went public to share. He had had a number of affairs. He was going public with that because the, the women he'd had affairs with were telling him, if you don't give us money, we'll tell your wife. So now he had to go public and share something very private. Here's the thing, though, and you can watch this online. When he made the announcement to his audience that he had cheated on his wife, the people laughed and they cheered. Because why? Because people mock sin. But God is not mocked. People laughed and cheered. You know, boys will be boys. But David Letterman was not laughing. And he would share about the depression he sank into. Listen to somebody being very honest here about sin. Maybe the world was laughing. He was not. Because he knows the pain he caused his wife and family. Here's what he had to say outside of that audience about his affairs. It was akin to having killed your family in a car crash. That's what it was like to me. I was afraid my family was gone. There's a consequence. Whether we reap holiness or we reap sin. For believers in Christ, they can look back and say again, 
you can observe the consequence of sin around you, but not enter into it because you're set free from it. That's what Robert Robinson learned in the 1700s. His mother came from a wealthy family. She married a man the family did not approve of. They said, if this marriage goes through, you're cut out of the inheritance. She married this man, Robert's father. They were deeply in love and Robert was born. Unfortunately, Robert's dad died when Robert was only five and now they're left in poverty. They sought help from his mother's family, but they refused. They said, you've been disowned for life. And Robert shared he and his mother were left in poverty. He grew up and he became this, you know, laborer, different jobs. One day, though, he heard George Whitfield preach. And in that moment, Robinson gave his life to Christ, and he went home that night and wrote this hymn. I'm sure we all know it. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. The next line is his testimony. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. That's the difference of repentance versus laughing at sin. That's the promise, again, that we can face all things in this world. You'll have trouble, but take heart because Jesus has overcome this world. So consider a fascinating study here of how Jesus has shown us he's overcoming the world. Done by uh, Steve Green, study of the top-selling books. Pay attention to this fascinating. Black Beauty sold 50 million copies. Catcher in the Rye sold 65 million. Line the Witch, the Wardrobe sold 80 million copies. Da Vinci Code, 80 million. The Little Princess sold 100 million. Harry Potter sold 100 million. Top of the list, The Lord of the Rings sold 150 million copies. Incredible. How many copies of the Bible total sales are there? Five billion with a B, five billion. Here's the next part of this study, though. How many books have been translated into many languages? Here are the top ones. Alice in Wonderland translated into 97 languages. Anderson's Fairy Tales, 153 languages. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 174 languages. Pilgrim's Progress, translated to 200 languages. At the top of the list, interesting, kind of cool, is Pinocchio. Most translated book, 260 languages. That is the most compared to the Bible. How many languages has the Bible been translated into? 2,150. That's why George Washington would say, let me live according to those holy rules thou hast this day prescribed in thy holy word Increase my faith, direct me to the true object, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life. So let me end with two people who knew what it was to live that overcomer faith. The first one, Jim Elliott. We've talked of him often because he impacted the world when he was martyred with four other men, 1956 in Ecuador. Since that time, more men and women have credited his testimony with why they became missionaries because of his faithfulness. On our wall, we have one of his quotes that says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But I learned something new about uh, Jim Elliott, doing some research on him recently that I had not known. Jim Elliott, in 
Four other missionaries' families and Jim Elliott's wife went to Ecuador to try to reach the Wayorani tribe, the most violent society known at the time. Headhunters, cannibals, and they wanted to reach them with the gospel. In 1956, you know, we know that Jim Elliott and the four men, they were martyred. The, four, the five women stayed with the tribe to share forgiveness. When the tribe saw that forgiveness, they said that's supernatural, and they surrendered to Christ. But what happened that day when Jim Elliott and the four men were martyred? Something I didn't know, and maybe you didn't know this either. They were sitting by a river, and they saw some of the women from the tribe coming with smiles on their face, and they thought, this is our moment. They're finally accepting us. We can tell them about Jesus. Jim and the other four men stood up and went to meet the women by the river, and suddenly behind them they heard a war cry. They realized it was an ambush. The women were setting them up as a decoy. They turned around, and here's all the men with their spears. Here's the thing I I didn't know until recently. Jim Elliott carried a pistol. He had a pistol on him that day. He could have defended himself and the other men. But here's the thing. He and the other men had made a commitment as well as their wives that they said, we will not use force to defend ourselves against someone we have not shared the gospel with. So they laid down their life and he said, let our lives in death be a spark to ignite revival. Different standard, different life. Not playing church, not wrapped up in the world, but saying, you know what? I live that overcomer life because Jesus overcame the world. He promises a life of protection. He makes a difference between those in him and the world. He's given us so much, the true and better one. What will we do for him? Final example, Arthur Stace grew up in the early 1900s. His father was an alcoholic. Arthur became an alcoholic as well, depressed. Finally, in desperation, 1930, he went to church, sat in the back pew. The minister shared Isaiah 57, the high and lofty one lives in eternity, the holy one. And Arthur Stace was captured by that verse and especially that word eternity. He wanted to know peace about eternity. He would write later on, eternity, eternity. I wish I could shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. Where will you spend eternity? Well, Arthur Stace lived 35 years after he had made that commitment to Christ. What he did is he took chalk and every day he'd go around Australia and write eternity. He'd write it on the stairs, on the wall, on a train, on a bus, wherever and everywhere. He became known as Mr. Eternity. In fact, two of the places he wrote Eternity, they preserved and are now in a museum in Australia. One of the pieces was shown in 2000 on the National Olympics. And Arthur Stace wanted people to know about Eternity. And how many times did this man who was captured by this promise of Eternity write that word to be a testimony to other people in the world? Arthur Stace handwrote eternity across Australia a half million times. That's commitment to Christ. Because he is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.